Welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. My name is David Lally. I'm the producer of the show. And today I'm joined in studio by our host, Brian Buffini, and his good friend, Joe Nigo. And we're here to talk fatherhood. I'm a dad myself. I have a daughter and two sons. I'm no authority on the subject, but I have learned many things from great dads over the years, starting with my own. He's the man I respect most in life, and there are characteristics of his that I certainly hope to adopt with my own children. But today, I get to interview two great fathers who have between them raised 11 children, all while having busy and full lives. So, Brian Buffini, Joe Nigo, welcome to your own show, Brian. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. 11 kids, here. man. It's, it actually sounds like a lot more when you hear 11, isn't it? Oh, no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. The A-team and the Fab Five. All right. Well, for the A-team and the Fab Five dads, my first question is something every parent struggles with. How do we get good at saying no? And why is that so important? You know, I, I, I always think from, uh, as a father, I, I always try to come from a position of love. And I think there's a difference between being a father and being a friend. You know, a friend wants to make their friend happy and make them give them what they want or give them what they need. And, you know, being a father of five boys, I look to be their father first and their friend second. So many times I have to say no to different music they want to listen to, different movies they want to watch. I personally, I'm like Brian in many ways. I'm more concerned about my son's spiritual well-being and their emotional well-being than I am worried about physical harm being done to him. So that's the approach I take. I say no to a lot of influences and negative influences. But on the other hand, I say yes to a lot of things as well. How about you, Brian? I know we've talked about this at length. For sure. Well, uh, you know, we agree on so many things and we've had a lot of chats and, uh, you know, we're kind of on the backside of it. You know, my last high schoolers are graduating here this last month and I got kids from 27 all the way down to 18 and everything in between. And, you know, Joe talked about I'm here to be a father, not a friend. I think there's a big difference between parenting and pleasing. Our particular families are pretty athletic, so we're in a lot of sporting environments. And you can see it played out, right, with a lot of people where it seems like a lot of folks in the modern parenting dynamic is, is more geared towards pleasing, not having anything bad happen, not dealing with any adversity. People really creating a lot of anxiety for themselves as parents by trying to avoid anything that's a setback at all. You know, it was interesting. I, I was on the driving range the other day. I was playing a charity golf tournament, had knee surgery six months ago, so I haven't been playing, so I'm not going to embarrass myself. I've got to go out and hit the ball. So I'm out there. I got a barrel of balls. I'm whacking away, and dad shows up with his two kids, and it looks like it's kind of his day with the kids, that type of thing, and he's got a nine-year-old and 11-year-old, and they were just mouthing off to him, this and that and the other, and, and so on and so forth. And the one kid was talking about wanting to be a good golfer. So I'm hitting the ball. I was hitting the ball pretty well. And his dad goes, well, this guy's a good golfer. You should listen to him. So the kid asked me some questions. How do I get good at golf? And he'd been mouthing off to his dad. And I said, well, golf is a game of discipline, game of rules. And I said, so I've been listening to you talking to your dad and being a little disrespectful. And I said, just so you know, that's not a characteristic to be a great champion golfer. And I said, your dad has a lot of wisdom and a lot of insight for you. I said, when you respect your dad, then you can respect the game. And if you respect the game, you can get good at this game. But if you disrespect this game, this game will disrespect you back. I did it in a good way. I just gave you a synopsis there as opposed to sounds like some overly opinionated jackass giving unsolicited <laughs> advice, <laughs> uh, which maybe there was a touch of that in there because the kid kind of pissed me off. But uh, I could tell that the dad was happy I said this to oh, his son. 
And I could also tell that his dad didn't have the chops to say it to the mm. kid. And here's the thing. And Joe talked about equated with love. He's not doing that kid any favors. Mm. He's not doing that kid any favors. He's setting that kid up for failure. He's setting that kid up to be that guy. Mm. That guy. When he comes into a company, he's that guy. He's disrespectful to the organization. He's disrespectful to people. When we allow that type of stuff, we're setting people up for failure. It's very common now for young girls to have an environment where, you know, it's cool to be disrespectful mm. to a guy and cool to be disrespectful for a dad. Well, guess what? When you're disrespectful, if you're in a marriage relationship, you're disrespectful to your husband, his first reaction is to be unloving. Mm. So great. So I'm allowing you to, to go off and be disrespectful so you can later have an unloving marriage. So this is big stuff. Yeah. And, and the little things are really the big things, I think. that's Yeah, and I can confirm that, Brian. I mean, having five boys and all of them playing basketball, I often say if I was rolling dice and playing Yahtzee, I'd, uh, I'd, ha I'd have Yahtzee. I'd win the game because right. that's five of a kind, right? right. But uh, all of them being involved in, in sports, I actually run one of the largest basketball programs in the whole Midwest, which is kind of the cradle of basketball civilization. We deal with over 2,000 kids every year, and those kids come with two parents. So mm. I would just imagine if you're in my seat, over 4,000 parents, and not only seeing them on a, a yearly basis, but over a decade. So exactly to your point, it's almost like a case study. I've watched how if parents don't discipline or don't say no or try to be their child's friend, I've seen the path of a kid through 10 years and where they go. Mm. Now, none of them grow up to be ex-murderers or what have you, but we all want what's best for our kids and we want them to maximize their potential. And I just see it when you have a, a parent that has the backbone to say no for the love of the kid, mm. want the parent to not please them, be their father, not their friend. Mm. I, we just see a whole bunch of good stuff happening. Yeah. If, well, I mean, game over, podcast over. I feel like you guys <laughs> just answered so much there. You're both mildly competitive, and you touched on it a little bit uh, there. What role does competition play with your kids? Well, it's good. You know, I think competition is good. I think it introduces failure. It introduces disappointment. It introduces teamwork. You know, you, you, when you squeeze an orange, out comes orange juice because that's what's inside. And so that's why I've loved sports. You know, one of my boys, Alex, is a pretty quiet kid. It wasn't until he was under the crucible of sports that I really find out what he was made of mm -hmm. in both positive and the things to support him in. And so it's interesting. And, and again, Joe's talking about his basketball program. And, you know, I ran a school here that was hugely involved in sports. And you get to see it all. And, and there's no doubt under pressure, things get exposed. And again, just because somebody's quiet, you don't really know what they're grappling with. And I just think for a lot of parents, what I've seen they're so cognizant of not wanting their kids to go through adversity or setbacks or disappointment. And anyone who's played any, their kids have played any kind of travel ball, oh my God, the whole playing time issue. And my little Johnny, my little Jane isn't getting to play. And it's World War III and the parental meetings and the programs that are built around this stuff, it's unbelievable. And every year is going to be this big emotional roller coaster. Dermot shared a quote with me years ago, and it's like, we become who we are as people because the adversity we face in our lives, and then we do everything in our power to remove all adversity from our children's lives. I just think that if you do that, you don't want to put your kids into a situation where they're being abused. You don't want to put your situation where it's doing psychological damage. But disappointment, oh, you know what? You're not good enough right now. You need to work harder. You're not getting the results. You need to persevere. Hey, you're not a star, but you could be like a support cast person 
Like those are all powerful lessons in life. And I think sports are fantastic. And any, anything, not just competition is what you're asking, because this could be in the academic field. This could be in the arts. This could be in music. This could be in whatever endeavor there is competition. And it's supposed to bring the best out of you. Well, what it does, it brings a lot of stuff out. Maybe you can speak to it, Joe. I mean, you're talking about 2,000 kids in the lockdown program that you have in Chicago. You know, you got to see the impact of competition and bad parenting all the time. Oh, no doubt. And, you know, I've, I've, I've matured in the process and I've become a better parent by watching mm. and seeing. And, I, you know, here's, here's where I'm at right now. I think the athletic field, the volleyball court, the basketball court, the baseball diamond or the soccer pitch is just a Petri dish. Mm. It's a Petri dish where children get a chance to grow and parents are on the sideline watching. And we watch and you'll often hear parents yelling at referees and how could that be or getting overly upset. It's a very emotional environment. So I understand it. And nothing brings out more emotion out of a, a human being than oh, yeah. children. Nothing, I'm, and I'm, I'm referee shouter-in-chief, by the way. Okay, but let me, I know, I'm getting to you next. You're on my list. I'm speaking to you right now, bro. But, but here, here's, I do a parent meeting every year. Yeah. And I talk with the parents, and, and I say, you know, and even like the listeners to this podcast, there's a good chance that almost every person listening on this podcast is doing better than their parents, mm-hmm. you know, living in a nicer home and maybe a nicer neighborhood, going to sending their kids to better schools. So the question is, is where do our kids truly face any adversity? Mm-hmm. You know, one place we find it is on the athletic field. So I tell my parents, I said, let's have a proper perspective. We're not raising lottery picks here, mm-hmm. NBA lottery picks or professional athletes or academic scholars, you know, road scholars, but we are building children. You know, we are growing children, right. so we want to influence them in a positive way. We hope they have adversity. Let's hope that the referee makes a bad call against your son, and let's see how you handle it and allow them to handle mm-hmm. it. Because it's a lot like life. Life isn't fair. Mm-hmm. Life isn't fair. We could do a whole podcast on life not being fair. Mm-hmm. So let's not overly protect our children. Let them compete. Let them experience all the the good and the bad that comes a result of competing in the classroom, competing on the athletic field, competing in the, in the music arena, let them compete in life because it brings out the best in them when a parent isn't there to save the day. Right. I was going to ask you, uh, why is failure a gift? Is, is that the reason? Well, here's my take on, I I think failure is like a man-made term. I don't even know if it's an American term or whatever the deal, you know, you think about the human language, we come up with terms to try to describe emotion. I, I think, and I, I was talking to uh, Grant, one of my sons, and I, I have a lot of heart-to-heart with my boys. And uh, Grant, he's, you know, finishing up his senior year in high school, getting ready to go to college. He's a basketball player, maybe one of the better of my five boys. And, and I, I want to get him ready for life, not, not just sports. So I, I told him, you know, when you go off to college, here's one concern I have for you. And his eyes opened up as big as beach balls. He said, what's that, Dad? And I said, my biggest concern for you is your, your patience, your patience, because patience is required to learn. And he doesn't like to fail at anything. Mm. At any, that's why he's such a great athlete. He wants to succeed and overcome and dominate. And you just know in life, you can't do it all the time. You know, you're going to have setbacks. And, and I pray for him and I talk with him about, you know, having patience, experience some of that setback, experience lack of success right away 
you know, things of that sort. So I always tell my boys, there's no such thing as failure. There's only feedback. Mm -hmm. Feedback's necessary for you to progress through this process to be effective. It's okay to, to, to make some mistakes as a parent. I mean, I'm 27 years as a dad. Now, I got to say, my oldest kids will go, man, you, you guys are so different with the twins than you were with us. And I told them all the time, we're practicing on you. You know, we're, we're just getting it figured out. Yeah. And things change and you go through different experiences. And, and, and you know, for me, I'm the great refiner, always improving. We'd be driving home from the game. Oh, you could have done this and that. And then I pretty much saw that it's kind of a, more and more of a disconnect with the kids, with the sporting stuff. And I realized, okay. I can't allow them to get caught up in their identity in it. I better make sure my identity's not tied up in it. And so I eventually, I got, and I got some advice. And I finally followed this advice, and I'd get in the car, and i go, man, I sure love seeing you guys play. And that would be the only thing that I would say following a game. Win or lose, I just get in the car. They're in the car I, I got to say, I, just, I sure love watching you guys play. And the more I said it, the more I actually started to believe it. You know, and I, I, I could handle it whether they won or lost or up or down or this and that and the other. And if they wanted some advice, they'd ask for it, which they seldom did, you know, because they have a coach. I didn't talk about their teammates. I just, hey, I sure love watching you guys play. It's, it's a treat. And now that I'm coming, you know, my girls are going on to play college volleyball, so I'll get to see them for another four years here. But, you know, they all, everybody stops playing someday. And I know we've kind of gone sports-wise, but, you know, this whole competition thing, you know, it's I'm watching kids take an antidepressants because they got a 4.3 instead of a 4.5 GPA. And, yeah. you know, in whatever form of competition, it's about who they are, not finding their identity in it, and you not finding your identity as a parent. And we're, this is a Father's Day message. I think for men, we're very results-oriented. We tend to be very results-oriented. So the outcome becomes almost more important. And for many of us also as men, we, we have an ability to connect around things like Joe and I have been best friends for years, but one, one, we connect around work. We love working together. We love creating content together. Men are like that, you know, they, and they've done all the studies, you know, the guys will show up to play golf together every Saturday morning and then one of them doesn't show up for a month and they don't get a phone call. And so men often have a, a desire to connect relationally around something. And so with your kids, sports, school, whatever. It's around the something. And I think it's always important to remember the someone. Whatever they're striving for at some point in time, maybe they catch it, maybe they don't. That all changes. Who they are and the connection you have with them, that's the magic. It's important. So it's great to let them compete. It's great to let them fail. It's great to be there to support them. It's great that they get to own their own journey. But at the end of the day, I think as dads, we have to just connect with who they are. Like I say, it's great to, great to watch you do your thing. I enjoy hanging out with you. Those are the things I say to my kids the most. You often talk from stage about the culture today. It doesn't leave a lot of room to think. How can we encourage our kids to think? Everyone agrees right now the culture is strange because the culture is in a transition. And you have old and new worlds colliding right now. And how people communicate, how people articulate, the things that just you, you could say in popular culture a few years ago that now gets you fired on a new TV network or something. And then you have the Instagram, social media, TikTok, whatever's going on. And that will always evolve. You know, TikTok is the hot thing for the kids. And, and their kids will go, oh, yeah, I remember years ago that you guys used to use TikTok, you know. So I think the real thing is you got to establish a culture for yourself and your own family. I'm not trying to take on the whole culture. And rather than get them to have time to think, the number one thing I know I do is we make sure we take time to talk. And we sat around making sure that there's times when, okay, 
The kids are having from practice, yada, yada, yada. I'll make myself available. I'll go down to Beverly. She's on the computer in her office. Like, hey, come on. Hang out. Well, I got to get this done. You know what? That'll still be there an hour from now. And we just have, you know, Joel talk about this camaraderie. And for us, it's kind of like kids had a little bite to eat. They'll sit up on the kitchen counters, yada, yada. And we just engage in discussions and conversations. And we'll let them talk. Now, if you get into your kids and you start asking them questions, it turns into an inquisition. You won't find anything there at all. So sometimes you got to ask them questions to get them to ask you questions. Or you got to go first and fess up. Or you got to go, man, I had something to that. You know, what would you do in this situation? And engage the conversation. The magic happens. I mean, for me, the magic in our home is in our kitchen. We've got a big center island. We've got all these counters around. I'll stand in the middle of the kitchen, whole court. And then the girls will come up and sit up here. And then, you know, if the boys are home from college and then, you know, Beverly kind of comes in and out. The bottom line is we end up in a situation where we get into some really good discussions. You know, the conversation starts to flow. And that's where the magic is. That's where the magic is. You know, David, taking the whole time to think. It was interesting. I was actually, you know, we live in a culture in the U.S. and in Canada where by education is so highly regarded. And, I, and there's no doubt about it. Learning and, and becoming more knowledgeable is a high value. I think it's often misconstrued by general public. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's interesting. I just was talking to one of my sons, Connor, who plays basketball at the College of the Holy Cross out in Massachusetts. He's a 6'9 guy, and he's playing for in a Division One program. The coach is working him really hard, working the team hard. And I was talking to him the other day right before a game. And he said, you know, Dad, we work so hard in practice. I work so hard in the offseason. And all that work is to put it into practice in the game. You know, we work for the game. It's all about the game. And I say that because it's kind of, there's kind of an analogy there with education is all about gathering information, learning, so you can critically think when you get out of school. And I see so many people, you know, I've worked with my kid. I'm not overly enthralled with the whole educational process in the U.S. You could see the whole admission scandal of you become who you are with where you go and in uh-huh. uh, what school you're in and how much you pay. And the whole process of self-education and putting things into practice and kind of like what we do at the seminar in, in the seminar business and coaching has so much of a critical thinking element to it because there's a practical application to it. So I've always worked as a dad, ever since the kids were young, is to really encourage them to figure it out. Uh-huh. Dad, we'd like to order a pizza. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, let's, you got to figure it out. Or uh-huh. uh, they got a ball game tomorrow at 7.30. Well, let's figure out how you're going to get there. And you know, just it, school, schoolwork. I don't sit down and do their schoolwork with them. I encourage them. I support them. I'm a resource. But they need to figure it out. In the short time I've been fathering, I see the whole idea of encouraging your kids to figure things out, critically think, pays huge dividends. Mm-hmm. Love it. Why is ownership so important? Well, I think it goes back to the same thing Joe mm-hmm. was just talking about. I would always watch him do this with his kids. And like Harrison goes, Dad, we want to go to this game. And can we get tickets and this and that? And Joe goes, okay, great. Well, go and shop online for the tickets, get the best tickets, find out where we should eat. And so it went from an entitlement of, I want to have this experience. And Joe would go, go do it. Yeah. And I'll pay for it and give me two, three good options, which is, by the way, the same way it's going to work now that Harrison's in the employment world, Mm. you know, but the same dynamic uh, exists. And so 
I think at the end of the day, what I see people do today is they're owning everything for their kids and their kids own nothing. So now what happens is it's incumbent upon, oh, you did this and you did that. And now the kids are kind of like consumers mm. and they're complaining about the experience right. that they should have been orchestrating themselves. You know, a great example of this is with my twins. Amy was recruited by a top 20 team in the U.S. to go to college to play volleyball. It's Division One. They're, they're top 20 every year. They go to the tournament, you know, highly competitive program, whatever else. She went there. She went through her own experience. She went to the university where her brothers go, and she, she's also done camps there and this thing. And she made a decision for herself. Now, I believe it or not, I know this is going to be hard to believe. I actually kept my mouth shut, and I was positive about all of her different options. She owned her decision. If she doesn't own her decision, when she's practicing and she's in the place she didn't really want to go, or she was trying to please me or her mom, that is a brutal experience. And so when we deny the ownership, we deny the opportunity. And so now what's happening is it's something done for me, and we create entitlement instead of engagement. Oh, Brian, maybe maybe you could build on this because I think you'll do a good job with this. But I, I think ownership implies responsibility. Mm-hmm. And we live in a culture where, you know, the parents take the responsibility as opposed to mm-hmm. the kids taking responsibility. And you could you don't have to look far. I mean, we live in a, a phenomenal country, but you see a little bit in the in the in the in the fabric of the culture is lack of responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's a victim. It's someone else's fault. I don't want my kids to be in that way. Mm-hmm. I want them to be owners of their own destiny, whether good or bad, owner of their language, owner of their actions. Right. And, and, I, and I would tell you this, being a father, my kids are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But I think one thing that you would find if you spend time with my kids, when they do something wrong, it's not if, it's when they do something wrong, they'll own it. Mm-hmm. Nice. They'll own it. And uh, I think that's huge. And that's, yeah. uh, to me, that's a major accomplishment in my life. Just having the kids take responsibility for themselves, what they do, their action, what they say. Yeah, well, let me, let me throw this right on top of that because it's such a huge concept. We're looking at people who've made big mistakes here going to jail because they paid a half a million dollars to bribe somebody, to lie on an application, to say their kid was an athlete, to join a sports team, to get into a university of a certain name. Think about the opposite effect of what that does. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, here's, here's what the child is experiencing. I'm not that. Mm-hmm. I'm a fraud. I'm a liar. My parents paid for me to get in here. I mean, the damage done to the child is far more severe than sending the person to jail. In my opinion, the person was already in jail. And it's the jail of the identity and the image that it's all created around it. So my boys are in school. And I said, here's the thing. People out there, they're very well-meaning their whole life. They wanted to be teachers or educators or whatever else. Blessing on them all. The system of academia, as entrepreneurs, Joe and I wouldn't be huge fans of. Because, I don't, you know, and you can speak to it yourself. I made myself a fortune by everything I learned outside of school. Mm-hmm. Okay? I suffered through school. I got my grades. I checked the boxes. I learned how to take tests. My boys are going to college, and I said, let me, let me give you this. I, I want you guys to go to school, and, and you want to do this. You want to have this experience, move out, live, live away from home. I said, hey, let's, let's make it worth your while. I want you to manage your time. I want you to manage your money. So my boys have interned and work at Buffini Company every summer since they were very young. So whatever money they earn for the summer, that's their budget for their whole college year. I don't give them a dime. So they have to manage their money. 
And sometimes, like, Adam, the, my account, he's my youngest guy. Our accounts are still linked. I, it shows up, but we, he and I haven't figured out how to get me off of that thing. But I'll see, like, he has six bucks left in his account, and there's, like, four days left. And he goes, that's okay, Dad. I'll be eating at the calf for the next four days. I'm good. He won't transfer the money early. So I'm like, home run. My kid is in college. He's managing his calendar. He's managing his money. And he's having to manage relationships. Okay, he's spending too much time with these people here, not getting his homework done. So he's managing time, money, and relationships. Well, I don't care what the heck else they teach him at that school. He's already winning. He's already winning. Like that stuff's preparing him for life. He's managing his calendar. He's managing his money. He's managing relationships. Now, that to me is making a college experience work for you. So, and it gets back into this whole thing of ownership, right? And it's, mm-hmm. you know, whether you own the mistake, own your life, own your journey. So you can do the conventional thing, but do it in a way that, you know, don't break their fall around the rest of it. Right. Yeah, no doubt. Now, that's awesome. I'm going to change tack a little bit. What's your best advice for a new parent? I have a 19-year-old, but I also have a brand new little baby and a three-year-old too. So best advice for a new parent? I'll do it in bullet points and maybe you, you can dive in here, Joe. I'd say, number one, learn the best from your upbringing. You know, you started off the podcast mm-hmm. today by talking about your dad and what a great dude he is. So I'd say learn the best. And so everyone across the board may not think they can have a great dad or a great mom and they had a tough experience or whatever else. But what's the best you can learn from your upbringing? The next thing is to be a student. And this is the same with everything in life. You need to be a student. Read the books. You see someone in a local environment, at your church, at work or wherever, they seem to have a great family, go take them for a coffee. Be a student, read the books, do the things. And then I would say don't parent out of fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So love is actually the opposite of fear. So don't make your decisions and do things about trying to avoid something bad to happen. I just say don't parent out of fear. That would be my three. Nice. Joe? I'll give you three as well. You know, watching, you know, becoming a student, taking a page out of your book, learning, watching other parents. Here's what I've discovered. It's just all about effort. It's all about effort. Because at the end of the day, if you have a relationship with your son or your daughter, and they know, they know in their heart, you could say, you could, you could do things that, you know, you look back at with regret. You could have acted in a certain way. You regret it. But it, your kid at the end of the day knows the effort is there. And where there's effort, there's love. So that, that would be number one, not trying to be perfect, but give an effort. Number two is time. I think one of the toughest things I've had to do is, as a parent, is really manage my drive. It's a lot more fulfilling in many ways selling a house than it is changing a diaper. <laughs> it just, it just, there's more feedback. But changing a diaper has a much deeper impact and uh, uh, meaning that me personally, I have to manage my drive to go. This is where I need to be, and it's been. A struggle throughout my whole life because uh, I like running at a full out sprint and it's been hard. It's been hard, but I've, I feel like I've managed the best I could. So trying to commit and understand the importance of that. And the last one is I find myself, I'm just like every other person that's proud of their children. And uh, I, I try to focus more on their character than their accomplishments. The, the accomplishments are going to come and go and those are results. But I, I try to look at my kids are not perfect. But my hope and prayer, Julie and I often think we, we know they're going to do things wrong. We just hope they realize it yeah. when they do do it. Love it. You know, we want them to be loving and caring and outwardly focused. We don't want them to be about themselves. So mm-hmm. character, not accomplishment. So it's effort, time, 
and then focus on character. That would be my, my advice. It's all fantastic stuff. I've known uh, both of your kids for a long time, and they are just great people. Great, great people. You guys have been married uh, individually, not together. Uh, you have, you have, Brian, you've been married 30 years. Joe, you've been married uh, for 26. Not everyone is that fortunate, though. Uh, there are other circumstances out there. So what advice would you have for someone who maybe doesn't get to see their kid every day? Yeah, been through a divorce. or I, I, And I obviously have a lot of relationships in that situation, so on and so forth. Never been there. I would say if I was talking to a, a dad who's trying to be a good dad who doesn't have access all the time or influence all the time, I, I'd focus on what you have and not what you don't have. You know, if you, whatever time you have, I'd focus on that. I think the second thing is to be fully present, just to be there, just to be fully present. I think that's, that's a hard thing for a lot of guys to do. It's a hard thing for me to do. I had to learn. I could be attending my son's game, but I could be on the cell phone. So I had to learn to be fully present. When I'm hanging out with the kids, just to be fully present. And, and that also translates, I, I got six kids. I got six different relationships. I, I don't have the same relationship with my twins. So when you're fully present with a person, you have a different relationship and the connection points and all those things. And then I would say just from a divorced person's standpoint, just to be disciplined and don't ever make the kids a football. Don't, don't take cheap shots. Don't rise to cheap shots. Don't respond to cheap shots. Greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. You got to lay down your pettiness, lay down your frustrations, lay down your angers, lay down everything and be there for your kid. And just be there and be there with them and be there for them. And, and that's, that's an important thing. So I think I know a lot of people have that. I know a lot of people work through that. I've witnessed some people do it extraordinarily well. And at the end of the day, the last thing I'd say on this is your kids watch. That's how they learn from you. They watch you. If you were to think of the greatest lessons your dad has shared with you, David, it's more by watching him and observing him in his life. Certainly. Than it has been any big lectures he sat oh, down certainly. and gave I can't, you, I can't you know? remember a word he said. Right? Yeah, right. And it's the same for all of us. <laughs> yeah. so you, you watch him and you learn mm -hmm. by watching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more is caught than toss. Yeah. You know, the advice I'd give, I, I mean, obviously those are tough situations. And I, I think what you said, Bri, is awesome. I, I, I think you can't make it about yourself. It's got to be about your kids. You got to die to yourself. Mm. You know, I had a neighbor of mine. His name was Johnny Principato. He's an older gentleman, kind of like the guru in the neighborhood. He was known as the prince. And uh, you know, he's probably 25 years older than me. And I was a young kid in the neighborhood. He was married, had children already. And then I wind up getting engaged. And then, and then now I have a, a son on the way. And he told me this. He said, you know, once you have a child, your life is no longer your own. Oh. And I've tried to prove him wrong for the last 24 years. <laughs> but uh, I know what he means now. It, it doesn't mean your life is less. But it's, it's no longer about you. It's uh -huh. about another life that you're creating an environment for. So when a, when a parent has limited access to a child, a couple of things. I, I think it's a tough situation because the time you do get with your child, what do most people want to do? They want to please as mm -hmm. opposed to parent. So that, that's a dilemma that I haven't been involved in, but I'd encourage someone to be a parent just because I, this is what I know for a fact. Kids know. Uh -huh. Kids know, and they may not know at seven years old. They may not know at 12 years old. They may not know at 14. They may not even know at 30 years old, but they will eventually know who their father is mm -hmm. by the way the father conducted themselves, the way they interacted with, uh, you know, maybe there was an ex-spouse involved or someone else. You know, they, they know. 
And I think there's got to be a trust in your own soul and your comfort in your own soul that it's not about you and it's about your child and you love them and they will know. Well, I know we're finishing up here. I, I, there was one thing I was actually thinking about because you're freelancing with these questions here today and it's just been stream of thought for Joe and I, but there's one thing I, I did want to share today. I was thinking about this. Everybody knows when Mother's Day is and you better not miss Mother's Day. I send my sister Louise flowers for Mother's Day. I, my mom, I've never missed a Mother's Day in, in probably 50 years. My wife for sure. But a Father's Day, it's kind of like it's okay to miss Father's Day. You know, and if you can remember a <laughs> pair of socks and a tie, mm-hmm. good stuff. No one can really remember the date. It's not as big of a deal and whatever else. But I, I want to say this for a couple of reasons. In our culture today, it is very easy and it's become more easy to be dismissive of man. When TV shows portray a dad, it's the dolt. Dad's kind of the uh, comic relief. Dad's the guy that comes in, says the dumb things, mm-hmm. and does the dumb thing. Everybody, it's the eye roll effect. And I would just say this. That is a very cultural dominant position, and I would say to all the guys out there, in my faith tradition, there's only one title that God ever gave himself, and that was the term father. And it is a big deal. And I would say to all the guys listening to this broadcast out there, don't underestimate the influence and the power of the fact that you're a father. And you will have generational influence because of who you are and what you are. And the gaps that you have as a man, which I have plenty, then it's important to go somewhere where that fathering and those gaps in that fathering can be made up. And that's where faith plays a big role. But I think being a father is a big deal. I think Father's Day is a great deal. I take the responsibility seriously. And I pray to my father in heaven that he'll uh, cover the gaps and any screw-ups that I make. It's a big deal. It's a vital role. It's a cornerstone of a culture. I want to applaud all the guys that are out there that get up every day and feel like they're failing at it or not doing a great job or whatever else, that you're in the game, you're fighting hard. If you're listening to this podcast and you're a dad, God bless you and more luck to you. Yeah, no doubt. That's a great, great point. Being a father's heart. You know, it's interesting as, you know, in preparation for the podcast, I was doing some research. Men in general are more likely to commit suicide and be successful three times more than a woman would. You know, men are more likely to be addicted to drugs, addicted to alcohol, experience obesity. And, and you have to ask yourself why. You know, it's interesting. I, I own real estate. I was driving to one of my buildings and in Illinois, they just legalized cannabis. There's a store selling cannabis in the line out the door. I made note of it because it was 11 o'clock in the morning and I looked and it was all men. Hmm. There wasn't one woman in that group. And this is how I take in that information, that it's hard, mm-hmm. that it's hard being out there and hard being a father. It's, you know, there's pressures to produce, there's pressures to connect. It just seems like many times mothers kind of have that a little bit more naturally. Men have to work at it a little bit more. And men don't take it lightly, and we cope with the problems by dealing with those issues of trying to comfort the pain. And so anyone who's out there that has a child, that, that's why I say, you give an effort, my hat's off to you. Mm-hmm. You're there, my hat's off to you. And anyone who does that has, has fulfilled their role and made the effort and is an A-plus father in my book. All right. Yeah. Hats off to you guys. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> No doubt, it's fantastic. This this was incredible stuff. I've experienced this a lot in my own life. Uh, some of the things that you guys both talked about there, and there's no question that time time seems to be a common theme. Mm-hmm. 
and nothing beats it, right? Well, to all the dads, it's sometimes a thankless job, but I hope you enjoyed today's show and happy Father's Day to all of you. And to all our listeners, I'm a father of three myself. I have a teen daughter and two under the age of three, and I know for sure I'll be using plenty of what I learned today from these two great men. And speaking of parents, we've got Brian's mom, Therese, to send us on our way today. Thanks for listening in. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.